Hi everyone, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSE. CSE is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It is my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well. Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSE and the host of the CSE podcast show. I've got another great guest today lined up for you, Rob Putman, Global Manager of Cybersecurity Services at ABB Process Automation. If you don't know Rob, he is a U.S. Army veteran. He is a father. He is a technologist, a car enthusiast, a skier, a rock climber, a team builder, and definitely a leader in industry. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Derek. Happy to be here. Well, Rob, I sort of start these things always in the sort of the same way. The backstory of modern uh, cybersecurity superheroes, you know, where did you uh, come from? Where, What rock were you? Uh, did you crawl out under a vat? Did you get created in? You know, superheroes have to have a backstory. So where did Rob start out? All right. Well, that's first one's a tough one. So uh, superhero. Okay. Not really sure how I got here, but uh, I've always, you know, I think the origin of it was I've always been curious about how things work. Now, whether or not I approach that from a security perspective, uh, I don't know, but I broke a lot of things trying to figure out how they worked, and I figured out a lot of ways that things worked uh, in ways that they shouldn't. And I think that, in many ways, was the origin of how I got into this, whether it was technology uh, or more mechanical things, just how does it work? Can I break it? I know it sounds horrible saying it that way, but, you know, can I get it to work in ways that it shouldn't? And, you know, at the core of that is just curiosity. Do you want to figure out how things work? And I think that's where it all started. So, Where'd you, know, you grow up? I grew up in a town called Bainbridge Island. It's in Washington State, just outside of Seattle. And that is a, I mean, I think you, you live there now, right? I mean, so you've been, you've come and gone to various places, but you're back in that area. Yeah. So uh, without totally dating myself, you know, 30 plus years later, I'm, I'm back where I started. That's actually a pretty existential statement. Not sure what yeah. that means yet. <laughs> you'll, you'll have to, when you when you figure out what it means, you'll have to let me know. Exactly. Well, that's that's cool. So um, I'm always curious, you know, where did technology intersect with your life? Did it in your early formative years before you graduated high school? You know, was there was there a technology influence on your life? Well, there was. I'll tell you what. It started out with uh, Dungeons and Dragons, an old Atari 800XL. So. I don't know if this is a confession or not, but I'm a former dungeon master. Don't play much anymore, but was really into it back in the 80s when I was in high school. And it, it aligned with the time that my parents got me an Atari 800XL, which, as you recall, oh boy, let's see if I can remember the specs on it, but I think it was 128K system, things like that. And when I got it, I discovered this weird little thing called BASIC programming language, right? And I realized, well, gosh, in the back of the DM's guide, there's these random dungeon generation tables. Well, you can code a few things and uh, put a random number generator together, reference table, blah, blah, blah. And I figured out the way to spit out random dungeons just by leveraging the uh, oh, random it. dungeon generation tables. Yeah. yeah. So that was what really piqued me. And then, you know, from there, as technology, computers, software, things like that uh, 
you know, continued to evolve, it just opened things up further. In fact, man, what was the size of those disks? Because I had the floppy disk drive with that 800XL as well. In fact, I think I needed it. You couldn't keep all keep it all in memory. You had to read back. But yeah, what was yeah, that? Five, that's uh, where it all started. Five and a quarter. Yeah, yeah, it was the big one, and yeah, boy, that thing was loud. It was a brick. It was uh, easily bigger than my laptop. Certainly thicker dimension-wise and longer. Yeah, that was I, it. Uh, that, I, Commodore 64 was my first introduction to technology and uh, 300 baud modem. So I was thinking of sort of early days as you were talking. And so I, I also was a, a big fan of the uh, D&D uh, game. So I applaud your uh, building, uh, building out some automation with uh, early basic programming. That's cool. Um, it was sitting right there. You had to do it. Yeah. Sorry, not to put it back on you, but what was your uh, your best and favorite character? Oh, you know, I probably, at the, in the different years I played, high school and, and a little bit in college, uh, you know, I, I drifted to the magic uh, users, the wizards, uh, always. Ah. Occasionally dabbled in other things, but it pretty much always always felt, felt at home there. Okay. I always gravitated toward the uh, multi-class uh, fighter thief. I mean, you got to have a, a skilled thief in every party and can never really see your way around combat. So <laughs> seemed like a good combination. Yeah, yeah. I love it. That's, and then that game, it's, it's amazing. It's, uh, you know, my children are playing. It's had a major resurgence. You know, it's had this up and down, sort of an interesting story over the, all the, you know, the decades since the founders created it. And now it's having quite a resurgence. And um, it's sort of fun to see that playing, playing out. It is role playing. And, you know, I'm, believe it or not, from a technology perspective, I'm really curious to see how augmented reality picks up some of these old role gaming uh role uh based uh, sorry role play gaming styles and can integrate those into an augmented reality uh scenario i was telling my boys the other day my fantasy before i die is i would like to be uh, i don't know union square san francisco fighting lizard men someday in an augmented reality scenario and I can just imagine everyone standing around uh, watching us as we're acting out what we're doing and have no idea what's in front of us. But, you know, we're going after lizard men. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think you're, you're right. The pieces and parts for that sort of immersive experience aren't, uh, are, you know, they're coalescing. You can see the different ingredients of that, you know, coming together. We're getting closer. We're yeah. getting closer. So what, uh, what did you do uh, after high school? Well, after high school, uh, you know, I think like a lot of people, I, I felt like I should go to college, you know, I should go to university. But I discovered uh, initially going to university just wasn't a fit for me. I couldn't get into the academics. It was a drag. And I'm like, well, what am I going to do? I didn't want to sit around my uh, hometown and, you know, work at the local Safeway or something like that. That wasn't an option either. And uh, I decided to go into the military. So I enlisted shortly, uh, not long after high school. What did you do in the in the, what was your MOS or specialty? Yeah, so I was a 91 Alpha Papa, so I was a combat medic and um, also attached to an airborne unit. We were 109th Military Intelligence Battalion out of Fort Lewis, Washington, part of the 9th Infantry Division, and we were division scouts. So what uh, during that time period were you? thinking, hey, I'll do a career in this, or like this is sort of a stop on the way to something else? You know, what was that transitional thought process and what did it lead to? Well, that was doing something with myself that I found interesting at the time while I figured out what I really wanted to do. Yeah. And, you know, it was a blast. I'm, I don't know 
well, I, I'm not sure what my veteran brothers and sisters will think, but I, I did not have to serve in combat and, and I have deep respect for those who did. And quite honestly, I'm grateful that I didn't have to have that experience. Pretty sure I would have done my job, though, uh, had, I get, had I needed to go do that. Yeah. Uh, but got to go on a lot of interesting deployments, work with some pretty interesting comms uh, equipment. And uh, even learned, uh, I'm not an expert by any stretch, but establishing shortwave comms over long distances back to a communication center can be a really challenging thing, especially if you're on foot and you don't want to carry a bunch of antenna gear with you. So learned some cool stuff there. We did have some pretty interesting unit fun days where they pull in a Chinook, throw parachutes on their backs, do a big picnic and throw us out the back and we'd come down and land and go do that a couple of times. Had to stay qualified, right? Got to get a certain number of jumps. Yeah, yeah. Do you still jump out of airplanes today? I don't, and it still scares me. <laughs> it's an unnatural thing to do, but once your chute opens, it's pretty fun. You realize I am suspended in the air and I'm okay, and I know how to land this thing. It's one of those things I, I've never done that I always wanted to. Uh, I don't know why that one, I never got to that. I do a lot with scuba diving. And that's sort of my passion area, uh, but I I never did the I never did the jumps, but uh, that's that's cool. So what was your transition then? Uh, what plan? What what happened uh, getting out? What did, what did you go do? Well, I'd actually uh, entertained trying to go into special forces at one point. They were dangling um, some pretty attractive dollars back in the day. I think uh, funny I remember this. They were offering like forty eight thousand dollars to re up, and I'd still have to go through the Q course and qualify. Because I was a combat medic, and I think the equivalent was I was trained up to about EMT level two, I was pretty interested in the medical side of things. And believe it or not, the mindset is a little bit technical. you got to understand systems, you got to understand dependencies, all that kind of stuff. What they were dangling in front of me was the equivalent of education of a physician's assistant, but I would have owed another eight years, and I was like, ooh. That is a long time, and 48,000 in eight years just didn't seem like it was worth it. Decided to go back and take a try at academics again, and uh, went to the University of New Mexico and studied uh, cultural anthropology. So you're not technology, which I think is interesting, and you're not alone in that. There are a variety of paths. Uh, you know, everybody I've interviewed, it's been so interesting. Uh, I'm always looking for things that are common elements, and there are things that seem to be present in a lot of your, your stories, but but or you know sort of the the stops on the way are so are so varied. So you didn't it wasn't technology approach and it wasn't a engineering approach, uh, which is a big part of your life today. So I'm always curious as to you know, when you're there and you're studying and you know well, what happens. How, how does it how does it end up leading? And you've you know not that we'll break down every single one of your stops, but you've worked for some major very well recognized brands uh, prior to ABB even, uh, you know, Sony and GE and HP. So quite a few, you know, technological uh, enabled or directly, you know, technology companies. What were those early steps? And what do you remember about the choices you were making? Well, so my first technology job was with Sony PlayStation. And it was after I would uh, moved north to the Bay Area. I was down in Southern California working some other jobs that weren't related to technology. Friends said this was back in uh, the late 90s, and friends were like, it's crazy up here. you got to get up here. If you got a pulse, they'll give you a job and a nice, uh, nice salary. And I had an opportunity to get on the, uh, the network QA team uh, for the 
PlayStation 2 network adapter, and that was uh, compelling to me. I liked gaming, uh, even though I didn't study technology academically. I, of course, was messing around with computers and doing things and gaming and stuff like that, and uh, informal education on it, if you will, nothing better than just having to figure stuff out. So yeah, landed into a role where uh, it was my job to break network gameplay and network gameplay experience, and we ended up getting pretty deep into that, but we had to figure it out. And has, has that been uh, technology ever since, or it, it's come and gone uh, over the years? Oh, I haven't left technology since then. That started it, right? So yeah, so from with the Sony work and then ever ever since. You know, I, I think one thing that sort of pops out that you said there was just being opportunistic. People were peers and friends, but were saying, "Here's what's going on. You should, you know, you should come up here and plug in." And so you just went and did it. And there's something about that too. There's people in one particular place or coming out of the military and wondering what to do next. And some of it is putting the feelers out there and going without knowing for sure how something's going to work out. Is that is that true about sort of the approach you took? Yeah, hundred percent. It sounds a little cliche, you know, because it's all about building your network, that kind of thing. But it's a little bit different in in Silicon Valley, which I worked in for the majority of my career. And this is prior to even looking at industrial automation systems in that space. It's really about projects and people that you enjoy working with. Right. And so the way the culture works around that is, especially on the software side, upgrades, platforms, architectures, technology are changing so quickly. And, you know, there's kind of two, two types of engineers, those that like to build new stuff and those that like to sustain old stuff. I'm the type that likes to build new stuff and figure out new problems. And so from the cliched network perspective, Someone leaves a company, goes somewhere else, whether it's a startup or a more mature organization, like, hey, I'm working on this. What are you doing right now? I don't know. I'm getting a little bored. What's what's going on? And that's kind of how it's always worked for me. I follow the thing that's interesting, and I've been fortunate enough that I've got some good folks that I've worked with throughout my career who always kind of are jumping around and working on interesting stuff. I'm curious, how have you maintained or how did you, you know, and back then, how did you maintain your those relationships as people move around, went to different places? Were you purposeful about that? I mean, what was the, because I think how people build their network and maintain their network, it's not always clear to some entry level or earlier career folks how to do that. Well, I got to confess, I'm pretty bad at maintaining my network and it just, it happens organically for me and it's really a combination of just staying in touch with people that you click with and, you know, it ebbs and flows. Sometimes you're living in the same state with somebody and you, you spend more time with them, but I don't know, you enjoy working with people and they're off doing something else. Five years later, they're in an interesting project and they remember, oh yeah, Rob kind of knew a few things about this and you get a phone call or an email. Now, from a coaching perspective, I would re- recommend being a little more proactive than I've been, but don't be disingenuous. Like, just stay connected with people that you find interesting, and it never hurts. You know, once a year or so, reach out to someone, see what they're doing, check in. Yep, absolutely. Well, you know, when did security intersect with this path? Well, dentally, really. So it started. I wouldn't have said it this way at the time, but it really started with some PlayStation because as we got into, we built a a wonderful lab environment where we were able to simulate, do network traffic shaping, do a lot of stuff in a controlled lab environment to uh, either a dedicated host or a peer-to-peer setup in a gaming model. 
to really stress it and just see what was the gaming experience, what could the program actually handle and under what conditions, and where did it need to be relative to expected conditions. And we still had a lot of dial-up back then. But where it got more interesting was where we began to explore how can we exploit gameplay to our advantage by either tweaking the network with available tools, exploiting things within the game itself. So I didn't characterize it as, as really security per se, but at the time we found much more enjoyment in trying to figure out how to exploit each other and gain an advantage in gameplay, which in a lot of ways is fundamentally security. How do I take a perfectly good working system and bend it to my advantage in some way? Was that was some of that with an eye to closing some of those up so that they couldn't be done by players in the out in the universe? Absolutely. And so one of the things I appreciate working about for with working at Sony was uh, their care for their brand. And that extends into all of their product lines. Sony, at least back then, I assume now as well, very much cared about the brand quality and the experience that end users would have. And so in that regard, whether it was a third-party or first-party title that was being released on the platform, the PlayStation platform, you know, bugs, exploits, those kind of things uh, were unacceptable. In fact, we created guidelines and standards around how the performance and exception handling of games uh, needed to be managed by developers. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So in a way, that was, I mean, you were white hack, you know, white hats on your own on your own system there. So that's, that's an interesting prelude to, it's like, you know things that you you got involved with uh, with later. I don't know if it happened before. I know that at HP you were part of a security group there. Is that the formal sort of uh, intersection? No, not at all. So after I uh, left Sony, I went to work for a company called Success Factors, and yeah. I thought it was interesting because they were they were doing cloud at the time or software as a service at the time. I thought that was interesting. Uh, in keeping with the earlier theme, it was friend of mine who I'd worked with at Sony had gone over there and she called me up and said, hey, I'm over at this little startup called Fastest. Do you want to do some different engineering stuff? And I'd been at Sony, man, how long was it? It was a good six years, which is a long run in Silicon Valley. And I said, sure, why not? It was interesting because I was doing engineering program. And that was the role that I was brought into, which meant that I was into DevOps. I was into uh, the planning and interface with product management and engineering. And we were supposed to be doing this thing called Agile, which I thought was insane at the time. I'm like, what? How's that ever going to work? So I got to cut my teeth on that concept, and I won't go into it for the purpose of this. We landed a really big customer that you probably heard of before, uh, known as Zenith. And it was going to be a global deployment of our solution, and it was absolutely a marquee grant brand that the leadership wanted associated with us before going IPO. Well, guess what Zenith required in order for us to win the contract? Something called penetration testing and a thorough evaluation of our entire platform and architecture. <laughs> yeah. So, well, thinking about it out loud, I think uh, compliance was probably my, my first rigorous and thorough introduction to uh, security requirements. And it was in a cloud uh, type of an architecture. Yeah, where was Success Factors? Which which part of the valley? So Success Factors was in Foster City, right That's across on the west. Yeah, I lived there. I, I lived there. We, we when you were we couldn't cross paths with each other because I was there. I lived there. I moved there in two thousand six, 
and I lived in San Mateo and then Foster City, so right right there for eight years. I was there, and believe it or not, it was just on the north side of the 92. Sony was on the south side of it. Yeah. Yeah. So I went to the other side of the 92 to work for Success Factor. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I remember seeing the sign. That's why I was like, I think that's where we used to live. So, yeah, that's cool. Anything from those early years then? I mean, you know, that's, uh, you know, a company, I think now, how many big companies require companies that are going to supply them to meet security rigor? That's become much more prominent. You know, not that many years ago, not everybody did that to their own potential detriment. But you were um, on the receiving end of that. It's like, hey, you got to do this if you're going to, if you're, you know, if we're going to accept your, you know, work with you, accept your product, accept your product, that sort of thing. Now that's, that's I think, a lot more common than it, than it was then. Yeah, for sure. And it really got us into uh, my education around the uh, rights and responsibilities around data as well, right? So for a European company... Humans was mandating where their data could physically reside, which I didn't think about that before then, but like, yeah, okay, you actually want your data in a specific physical location. Uh, and then all the uh, access control types of, of topics come up around that. Got into some intellectual property side of the issues too. One of the things that really stuck in my mind was the difference around uh, ownership of the raw or native data that's collected and persisted versus derivative value that you can take from that data and who who owns that. So that was a pretty cool, insightful uh, learning event there. So security then is, is coming uh, in, in converging your path. When do industrial systems and control systems, you know, how do, when do those converge? Yeah, so I took a, a number of uh, stints or two stints. I was at Yahoo after uh, Success Factors and then on to HP. HP was really where I think Security was in my job description, so to speak, or my title. Prior to that, it was a consideration. It was a requirement. Um, it was something we had to pay attention to. But it was at uh, HP Fortify. Fortify was a standalone company that HP had acquired a number of years before. And I was brought in there to build a, run t- a real-time application self-protection uh, offering. And it was based on, it was an agent-based approach that would implement into uh, uh, container-based applications and would actually, I don't know if this is the right term for it, but it would use a rule-based engine to evaluate calls made within the internal sort of URL of the application. And we got into a bunch of stuff, both uh, static rule-based evaluation, but also uh, behavioral-based analytics. So we would begin to profile what normal would look like in the day-to-day use of the software. It would identify anomalies, et cetera. The whole point was, well, I think the secret sauce around the offering was let's take SQL injection, for example. Web application firewalls were a big deal at the time, and you know, looking at variables that are being passed over the wire versus looking at variables passed within the context and logic of an application are two entirely different things. And uh, we believe that the fidelity of our approach and the degree of false positives that you'd experience from a runtime application self-protection approach would be much better. And I was the product manager for a tool called uh, HP Application Defender. And it was a cloud-based, well, combined cloud-based agent uh, architecture and uh, container-based applications, so .NET, Java, that kind of thing. Then GE and Amy, where you are today. And so, in you know, the, the control systems aspects 
I'm assuming I know they're part of your world now. Were that was that at HP or GE where industrial control systems part of it? Right. So how do I get into industrial control systems? This is um, you know, Rob. This is really sort of a critical moment in the conversation because there's a lot of people outside, let's say, our community saying, "Where do people come from?" And of course, the big answer is they come from all sorts of different backgrounds. And people have their favorite, like, oh, I, you know, I would rather have an engineer that learns cybersecurity. I'd rather have a cybersecurity person, you know, that that then learns, you know, learns some plant stuff, learns about safety. Yeah, I've heard it all. Uh, but people do come from lots of different backgrounds because the, we don't have enough people. So the workforce working to protect, you know, critical systems and control systems is diverse. It's, you know, most, a lot of people are missing. <laughs> we need more people. They're going to have to come from different backgrounds. And so I think this is always a curious part of the conversation is like where that where your journey uh, intersected with it. Nope, you nailed it. This is the critical moment here. So hopefully if you listen to anything else, this is where it happened. One of the executives from uh, HP that I worked with went over to something called GE Digital. And this was, uh, it wasn't at the beginning, but it was uh, not long after when they were forming GE Digital, they figured out their organizational model, et cetera, et cetera. GE pumped an amazing, you know, billions of dollars into this endeavor. And I got a call. I got a phone call. And, you know, same thing. What are you doing? You still happy there at HP? Uh, we're doing this thing called GE Digital Automation Control Systems. We were mostly focused on GE gas turbines. I think uh, I still, my jaw drops. I think GE still, uh, GE equipment and kit accounts for a third of the world's uh, power generation. So huge footprint. And, uh, you know, listened to the pitch, went in and, and met some of the folks. Uh, the, the GE Predix side, you know, that made sense to me what they were trying to do with my software and cloud background that I had. The automation control system side, I was like, I, I don't know what this stuff is, but that can either be a good, good or a bad thing in anyone's career. You can either say, well, that's scary. I don't know what it is. I have no competency into it. Or you can say, oh, cool, a whole other area to go explore. And that's how I, I started. I was asked to come over and help organize and grow a product line. And that's kind of where I was at in my career. I'd done the engineering program management, the engineering DevOps side of things. I'd done the, the product development and commercialization side of things. And uh, it was intriguing to me. You know, here's this whole new space. Uh, doesn't seem to be, it seems to be emerging. It seems to have a place. And it gets me into this whole industrial side of things, which I've never really thought about. That was how it happened. And yeah. I was asked to put together a portfolio and figure it out. Any interesting stories from your early uh, exposure to to that side of the side of the house? <laughs> Absolutely. And you know what? I'm going to tie back the academic piece here. So cultural anthropology. If you want to understand how things work or you want to understand what's really going on, start walking around and talking to people who are really working with the stuff. So, and this is still relevant today. I'm going to sound like I'm getting on a, a podium or a pedestal here, but the software cloud engineering side still doesn't go and talk to the operators and the automation system architects, the people who've been building and solving problems on this stuff for decades, and they come in and say, well, I can do this, this, and this. I got tapped into some of the architect team for the Mark 6E, some of the guys who actually built and figured it all out. And I won't use a name, but one of my favorite people there, I'm still in touch with them. 
you know, older guy. He was one of the original architects, the Mark 6E, and I don't know how far he went back uh, in the vintages behind that. But, you know, he told me one day, he goes, because he was tasked with helping the digital team, he goes, you know, Rob, it's interesting. A lot of the problems that they want to solve around the Mark 6E, and we're talking about asset performance management and collecting and trying to divine intelligence from data tags, all that kind of stuff. He goes, you've already figured out 95% of those problems. So they're going back and rediscovering the same things that we've already figured out. And nobody comes and asks us, what are the really hard problems that you haven't been able to figure out in the design of the Mark 6E that maybe data science can help with? And I still see a lot of that. We're, We're kind of reinventing solutions to problems that uh, you know, the original design is already figured out, which is a good thing and a bad thing because the good side of it, and I won't drag it out too much here, the good side of it is those systems and designs, if you know how to ask them certain questions, they'll give you answers to these things. They already have that information. It's already considered. And then figuring out the gaps. How do you really add value with additional technology, data science, et cetera? I, I find that whole thing fascinating. And I still find that divide between these two domain, these two domains to be fascinating. It's like, why don't you guys get together and talk, make a combined roadmap? You got some really smart engineers on both sides and you guys just aren't talking. Hey everybody, Derek Harp here. And I just want to take a brief moment to thank three companies that make this podcast series possible. The first company is Waterfall Security Solutions. They led the charge this year for the podcast and they specifically sponsored it from their podcast, the Industrial Security Podcast. So check that out. That's a great linkage to an entire other series of over 100 episodes. They had their anniversary recently, focused on control system cybersecurity. And they were supported this year by KPMG and Fortinet. We could not do this without them. These companies not only have supported this podcast series this year, but they've supported CSA since its very early days eight years ago. And we're entirely grateful to the teams and dedicated professionals at Waterfall Security Solutions, KPMG, and Fortinet. There's such a call for that, what you just described to be better than it is. Bridge yeah. building, trust building, whatever phrase you want to use is it, really called for in, you know, in so many places in the same company. Uh, you know, it's like we work for the same company, but there's, there's still, you know, disconnect at, at best and distrust at worst between various yeah. stakeholders. It's I, I keep hearing these stories and it's just like, oh, come on. But the success stories I hear, a lot of time have themes, one of the themes you mentioned, which is I go over there and I ask those guys, I go over my lunch and I say, hey, can you show me how all this works? And it's amazing what doors will open up and maybe I take a box of donuts and build those bridges. And you know, and so the future, if people will do more of that, the future could be quite bright. Like you said, they could be not doing some work or great efforts that maybe aren't necessary. We could focus, we could uh, leverage the best expertise of, uh, of multiple stakeholders that have you know different professional and technological backgrounds and engineering backgrounds. And yeah, there's, there's a call for that, right? Break, break down some of those, those uh, barriers or resistances. Well, and you know, good old fashioned product management and uh, a self critique right now in my current role, and get into that later, I don't go out with and spend time on site with operators enough. And I'll, I'll keep it quick. I got two stories. One was a product called OpShield, which was from a company that GE acquired. It was, uh, you know, network capture based passive analysis, but it also had a, a protection function to it as well. We don't have to go into 
op shield and world tech, but it was a bump in the line solution that you'd put at the last mile to the controllers. We were at a, uh, we were at a dispatched power plant. I won't name the company, uh, or the location. And we knew reasonably that we could do a, a hot install of this thing. And it, it would not or should not <laughs> trip the plant or uh, disrupt availability. Went in there, met with a lot of the operators. We were talking, met the guy who was in charge of security for the site. They all agreed, yeah, we agree with you. You can do this. It's okay. But, you know, mind you, this plant was dispatched, which is <laughs> pretty big deal. The plant manager, I'll never forget this, uh, when we were doing the install, she was pacing outside of the control room. She was pacing around, and uh, she even came in at one point in time. It turns out she was pinging different nodes from her office in the automation control system. She'd come in and say, hey, I notice we no longer have a, a network between this and this. And we're like, it's okay. It's just going to be another you know, minute or so. There's redundancy. and I mean, you know exactly why she was doing it, because she's the one who was going to get the phone call when they uh, failed to deliver energy to the market. So that was a great experience. And again, like you got to get out there and just work with and talk with people who are doing the work, get their understanding of, of security. Sometimes you'll be pleasantly surprised. Sometimes you'll be disappointed, like an inconvenient truth, kind of like climate change. Nobody's looking for another thing to do in a lot of those environments. Yeah. Which is a great insight to uh, productization, right? The care and feeding of this stuff. Sorry, the second one. Uh, the second one, I had a chance to be in the Middle East, and it was a cement uh, production facility. And these guys just wanted to figure out what they had and where it was and put some automation in place so they could maintain an inventory. And we were talking about how to do that. It was uh, This was with ABB. This was ABB kit. And uh, one of the operators, we were walking around there, showing me where everything was. And it was fascinating. We were out in the uh, we were out in the Saudi desert in the middle of nowhere, and uh, they were showing me the facility. Which, again, go out, walk with these people, see the site, actually see where things are. It's amazing. And he pointed at he pointed at a PLC that was off in a corner of some warehouse-looking thing, and it was half buried in sand. And uh, he said said, that thing's been running. We haven't restarted it for 15 years. We every once in a while go brush the sand off of it, but it keeps going. And he was very proud of that. So again, you don't get those insights unless you're on the ground, you're seeing the conditions that these systems are working in and the challenges, the problems that these people actually want to solve, uh, not only as operators, but as a business. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I love both of those uh, experience shares. So let's you know, jump to what you're doing now. Now, I think some people may not be aware. I mean, obviously, people who are deeply in the industry know that large equipment manufacturers, the Siemens, the ABBs, the Rockwells, uh, some of you have cybersecurity businesses. You know, it's one thing to say cybersecurity work being done there to create product that's more secure, but then there's these other side of the house and where there's actually services. And so that's, you know, I think if you could hold forth a little bit on what the mandate and vision for that is at a big global, you know, huge global company like ABB. All right. Well, that's a really big question. So uh, I think the first thing that comes to mind is you've heard of the Peter principle before, right? You, you find yourself uh, elevated to the highest level of, of your personal, professional incompetence. 
that's a slightly negative way to put it. And a more positive way to put it is, are you continuing to stretch yourself in your career, right? So one of the things that I enjoy, and I actually took a little bit of time out there and, and went and did a master's in business, in part because I felt like I needed to, and I, I maybe thought it was wasted time because what I really like doing is figuring out product solutions. In fact, who knows, maybe one day I'm going to get back to just doing that. But the opportunity both at GE and at ABB was to put together and curate a portfolio of products and services that actually solve problems that people have, right? And you probably heard the old cliche of someone comes up with a clever technology or approach to something and, you know, it's a solution looking for a problem. And I see that mistake made far too often and I see a lot of clever marketing spun around solutions that are looking for problems. I've got a very different uh, sort of philosophy around uh, portfolio and commercialization. And it's, you got to focus on the problems that are really going to have impact for those who, who care about it. And those who care about it actually have to agree that you're solving a problem in a way that represents value for them. So what does that mean for my current role? It means that in our strategy and in our portfolio, we uh, have to be continuously thinking about what is our approach to bringing various, we think about it in terms of capability maturity, like capability maturity model, right? You know, don't, uh, don't go for the, the really high-end expensive approach when you haven't done the basic kind of hygiene stuff. And I think far too often, well, let me, let me talk about one of the challenges that our customers have, because I think this will really speak to it. They're big business challenges. They're challenges of budget and scale. And so if you're going uh, and trying to curate uh, the product side of cybersecurity program and approach, and you're doing it vendor by vendor across a global scale, uh, you're going to get killed, right? And so when I think of value to a large customer who has sites that are distributed regionally, not only in their program, but around their governance and their strategy, standardization is uh, absolutely essential around procurement, delivery, maintenance, all those kind of things. And so at an ABB or a, a GE or any of, uh, of my present-day competitors, I'm not sure that that message is echoed loudly enough because that's a core problem, right? We can get into the security specifics, but just how do I curate, deploy, maintain, and then audit whether or not the program that I think should be in place is in fact in place, and it can't cost hundreds of millions of dollars, and it needs to be done in shorter than 10 to 15 years. So not sure how I got there, but I think that's one of the things that I find interesting because it is a combination of both technology and the commercial side, and it goes across the whole value chain of stakeholders in the organization. You know, whoever the, the poor soul is who, when the board said this is a priority, who got tapped and said, guess what? You know, Derek, uh, you now in, own, uh, in the, you know, automation cybersecurity. Go figure it out and report back to us in two weeks. Now, hopefully you got more time than that. <clears throat> you know, you care about different things than, uh, you know, the local operator or the plant manager does. And so really understanding how you stitch that all together and put together uh program that someone can get started with, improve over time, and then measure whether or not they're actually having impact against the goals that they've identified uh, 
primarily around risk. That, that's oh, really cool, and it's a hard problem. It's yeah. really hard. Yeah, that's not trivial, but it makes sense. They, how do I do this? How do I actually do it? Uh, out of the yeah. theoretical, in the, the into the practical, and afford to do it, time and money, resources that are going to be consumed yep. to do it, and achieve my mission, which isn't security, by the way, or efficiency even. It's it's whatever it is they do. You know, I got to achieve that mission, and oh, by the way, I know I got to do these other things. That that is a, I mean, that's. In a nutshell, that is the challenge, right? And it is not trivial. And I love it. And I don't think we're really good at it yet, but we're getting better. And so uh, I would love to see it get to a more mature state, a more uh, globally adopted, agreed upon set of standards. I'd love to see it move away from point solutions and more into program and governance and kit and those kind of things. I think it's well, it touches all the levels, right? It touches critical infrastructure, national security, it touches what many of the operators care about is, you know, that thing, that asset uh, needs to be available and doing its, uh, performing its function for whatever the business is. Yeah. Well, spanning all those years in either going back or recent, any, you know, words of wisdom that you want to pass on uh, to people in the industry? You know, we have listeners of all shapes we've got people that are quite experienced and curious to hear their peers you know peer stories and we've got entry level and, and earlier stage career people that are making critical choices about their path we have people knocking on the front door coming to some of our events and saying how does one break into this industry or it people saying how do i break into this you know ot or ics you know cyber uh, arena and so is, do you think there's any sort of Anything comes to mind, like this is, you know, I guess something you learned along the way or observed along the way that you want to pass on to everybody? Yeah, I think it's pretty simple. Be curious. Think about, find opportunities, work opportunities that are in a space that you're willing to de dedicate your thought and effort to. I don't have any regrets around the, the sort of sidewinder path of my career to date. In fact, I used to wonder, why don't I have a bigger vision for myself? It's absolutely okay to follow and pursue the things that you find intellectually interesting. Because at the end of the day, I think the worst possible thing, and, and this is a projection for myself, the worst possible thing that could happen is you're stuck in a job that is not intellectually challenging, is the, the domain just, you know, you don't wake up in the morning and go, I get to think about this, right? That would be terrible. So, there, there's no written path. I mean, be, be curious, position yourself, go work in things. I mean, just because you're in IT doesn't mean that you can't come over to OT. OT needs a lot of your skill set, but you need to understand the, the priorities that the operators have and adjust your approach. I think anyone in IT could, could come over and if they spend the time working with, uh, with operators, spend a little bit of time. They don't need to master automation control system or ladder logic or anything like that. Leave that to the operators and engineers on that side, but they need to understand what their priorities are. They know that they can't just go do a, a rolling update on HMIs and workstations anytime they want. Uh, but if they work with them, schedule it, proof out some sort of automated approach, et cetera, operators are reasonable. They just don't want you to come in and disrupt uh, disrupt availability. It's pretty simple, but yeah, be curious. Go work in areas and domains that when you wake up in the morning, uh, how about this? Let me boil it all down. If you wake up in the morning and you don't tell yourself, I get to go think about this and work on this, you're in the wrong job. Simple as that. 
sage advice. That's not uh, not a bad uh, bad wrap up for uh, for anybody in any any walk of life, really, right? Um, and, and sadly, a lot of people are waking up and not able to answer that in a positive way. I mean, I'm not talking, picking on our arena. It's true in lots of arenas, and uh, it's it's shame to spend one's life uh, doing something that, you, that there's no passion for and no excitement for. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, Rob, we come to my uh, one of my favorite parts of doing these with all of you, um, where I borrow a, a questionnaire, 10 questions, from uh, a television show that I loved for years. It was called The Inside the Actor's Studio, and the longtime host, James Lipton, has passed on. But for decades, he interviewed all the great actors and actresses on his stage at, at the uh, acting school in New York where he was the dean. And this show was televised in over 100 countries. And he ended the show with this thing that he called the Pavot Questionnaire. So it, I looked it up, and it's from some French show that he borrowed it from. And so I've made no changes to it. And uh, and sort of as a nod to it, its heritage, uh, if you're up for it, I'll give you the same 10 questions as our uh, our windup. Let's do it. Curious to see how I do. All right. What is your favorite word? Well, it changes over the years. Uh, my favorite word right now is malice. What is your least favorite word? Hygiene. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? That's a really good one. I'd say what gets me really excited is looking at uh, a perfectly functioning system or logic or belief and asking the question, what if they got it wrong? What turns you off? Uh, lack of curiosity, just accepting the status quo. Uh, I mean, doesn't mean the status quo isn't good enough, but uh, yeah, you're, you're not curious. So lack of curiosity, that's a turn off. And what is your favorite curse word? Oh, my favorite curse word? I think it, forgive me, but it's fuck. It's the most dynamic word in the entire world. I, you know, we could do a whole podcast on that word. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of uh, undisturbed nature. So getting out, hiking, being in the mountains, and sitting and seeing what you can hear, because there's a lot there. What sound or noise do you hate? Ooh, that's a good one. It's not the usual, you know, fingernails on the chalkboard kind of thing. Oh, I know what it is. It's people sniffling when they've got a runny nose and they just keep doing it. Oh. <laughs> In what profession other than your own would you like to attend? Sorry, what's that again? What profession other than your own would you like to attend? Well, it's not a regret, uh, but if I were to go back and wouldn't have worked when I was younger, but I would love to be in medicine. What profession would you not like to do? Fast food. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Congratulations. You didn't have to, you, you didn't figure it all out and you didn't have to. Thank you for coming on the show. I'm just ending with Rob Putman. He is the global manager of cybersecurity services at ABB Process Automation. Thank you for coming on the show and uh, for um, all your years contributing to the cybersecurity industry and, and to our uh, modern technology-based society and uh, and for your passion and, and curiosity and uh, that we all we all benefit from that, I think, downstream. So thank you for all that and I look forward to uh, our next chat together. Always a pleasure, Derek. Thanks for having me on. Enjoy your day. Take care. Take care, Rob. Hi, everyone. This is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of the Control System Cybersecurity Association International, or as we call it, just CSEC. CSEC is a 501c6 nonprofit workforce development association dedicated to helping grow, support, and sustain the professionals charged with the cybersecurity of control systems. We're specifically talking about those systems that have pumps and valves and actuators, real cyber to physical moving parts, and control nearly every aspect of our modern connected industries. 
Thank you for tuning into the podcast. It's my hope you find it inspirational or motivating or revealing or informative, and perhaps at times even a little entertaining. Take care and be well.